got? I'm Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here. It's really good to see you all here today. <laughs> uh, I want to start with a little service announcement. Just FYI, uh, the, the National Center for Social Decency has rated tonight's presidential debate R17. You don't want your kids watching the debate tonight. Uh, I don't know if you've been staying up with the news, but it's, this, this, it's getting dirtier and dirtier and nastier, and tonight's going to be one mudsling fest, and you don't want your kids around that. All right, end of that. End of service announcement. See? If you get nothing else out of the sermon, you've, you've been helped. Okay. We're talking about the church. And uh, I'll start with this. You know, in every culture, people are conditioned to look at the world a certain kind of way. It's inevitable. And cultures differ in how they look at the world. A centerpiece of the Western worldview as it's evolved the last 200 years or so is that um, we tend to see ourselves as consumers. That is, we look at the world through a lens of weighing benefits to us versus costs. We do that kind of with everything. Costs versus benefits. It's just the grid through which we see the world. We experience the world that way. What's in it for me? No, that's natural and necessary uh, in, in, some, in some spheres. Like if you're going to buy a house or a car or something, you want to weigh the benefits of the cost. You like the location of the house, and the neighborhood looks really nice, but the cost is pretty high, but the house is big enough to fit all your kids. And, and it, you, you weigh that. That's, that makes sense. Same thing with a car or any kind of major purchase. Although for kingdom people, we always got to remember that the ultimate deciding vote isn't cost versus benefits, but is this what God wants me to do? Okay, so he gets to trump everything. Sorry for... Political reference there. <laughs> you can't say the word Trump anymore. It's like, so, um, okay, so the, the but that's natural to, to, to weigh costs and benefits on those kind of things. The trouble is, is that we're, this consumer identity is so deeply ingrained in us that we tend to do with everything. So when we enter into relationships, it tends to be on a cost-benefit analysis. You know, you like this person because blah, 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 blah. They like, you know, they laugh at your jokes, whatever. But then again, you know, they kind of bad breath and they, you know, don't. You know, chew too loud or whatever. So there's, there's cost-benefit. Um, and even that's pretty natural. You know, I, I, I wouldn't want to be in a relationship where everything about the person bugs me. Uh, you know, so that's kind of natural. The, the trouble is that often we don't go much deeper than that in our relationships, sometimes not even in our marriage. People get married because the benefits outweigh the cost. But see, that's kind of a contractual relationship. It's a quid pro quo relationship. You give me these benefits and I'll put up with this about you. And they're doing the same thing. It's a contract thing. And with contracts, as soon as the cost outweighs the benefits, well, then you end the contract and you move on. And so if that's our whole mindset towards our friendships and towards our marriage, well, it prevents us from really learning what love in a profound sense means. Because there's a kind of depth of love you only get to when you enter into a covenant with a person, which is totally different than a contract, where you make promises. And you put up, even sometimes when the cost seems to be outweigh the benefits, you hang in there. And that's what allows you to discover a deeper kind of love. The consumer mindset can prevent that from happening with us. Our relationships tend to be shallow. Um, it's so deeply ingrained in us that a lot of people even define truth, what they're going to believe is true, on the basis of costs versus benefits. So I hear things like this quite a bit. Uh, people will say things like, well, you know, I don't really like to believe that God's not in total control of every particular thing that happens. It just makes me feel kind of insecure. Uh, or or I, I just don't think that God really wants us to reserve sex for marriage because that feels so constricting to me. That can't be the will of God for me to be frustrated. Um, or, or I can't believe that Jesus, when he says love your enemies, he certainly isn't saying that you know, we shouldn't do everything possible, uh, including engaging in violence to protect ourselves or our loved ones or our nation. Obviously, God, obviously, God you know, wants us to, to do everything possible to protect ourselves. Oh, come on. And, and, and so it's, it, we define 
beliefs on the basis of whether we like them or not. Even true beliefs. Like I've heard people sometimes say, uh, well, I believe in Jesus because it just makes me feel so good to know that I'm loved and, and, I, I, and I think it's true because I, it just makes my life work better. And I'm glad you believe that for whatever reasons, but that's not a very good reason. I mean, you really ought to believe it because it's true. <laughs> and that's because you just happen to like it. I don't know where we got this idea that, that reality, what is true about reality, is supposed to conform to our expectations and to, and to our preferences. Where did anyone come up with that idea? It's crazy if you think about it. If you know anything from science the last hundred years, it's that the world that we're coming to know in quantum physics and all that stuff is, is way stranger than anyone expected. In fact, it's un, unfathomably strange, just bizarre. It doesn't meet our expectations. And I would think that just growing up would be enough to teach us that reality doesn't conform to our, our preferences because we bump up against it all the time. Uh, I'll teach us that it, it, reality doesn't conform to us. We have to conform to it. So when I was like 12 years old or so, I was, there's this big hill by our house, really, really steep, big hill. And we'd go down it on sleds, which was really fun in the wintertime. Trouble is that one part of this hill had five power lines in it, going back down it. And being a 12-year-old with an undeveloped prefrontal lobe cortex, we would weave, we'd go down the hill, weave in, like solemn skiing, we'd weave in and out of those, those poles. So you could do it the fastest, and who could make all five? My dad saw that one time, and, and, and he read me out and said, don't you, what are you, stupid? It's like, yeah, I'm 12. Uh, it, <laughs> he said, that's dangerous. If you don't, you could run into one of those things, and that's a steep hill. You guys are going really fast. You could kill yourself. Uh, I forbid you to go down th that part of the hill where there's those power lines. Being a 12-year-old with an undeveloped prefrontal cortex, I thought my dad was just wrong. Uh, it, it, it can't be, I, it was too fun to, to, to really be dangerous. Uh, and it puts a little bit of peer pressure, you know, you, you like, I dare you. And so I, I, I don't want to believe that it's dangerous. I, and we haven't seen one person killed on those power lines yet. So there you go. So we, uh, a couple days later, I'm sledding and the kids say, let's go over to the power lines. And so we go over the power lines and we start weaving in and out and having a lot of fun. And I go down this hill this one time and I make the first, second, third, and even the fourth, but I didn't quite make the fifth power line weaving in and out. And I wrap myself around that pole, just like, boom, pancake. Uh, going probably 20 miles, 25 miles an hour. I was really fast. But I smashed my insides, just crushed them. Uh, the last thought I had before I passed out was, I am in such trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I am in so much trouble. Now, that's my concern. And then I thought I died because I, I just went blank. And I had this kind of blissful feeling. And I was waiting for the Virgin Mary to show up because I was Catholic at the time. And... Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I, I was in serious shape. They had to do an exploratory operation on me because I was bleeding profusely on the inside. Everything was smashed. Uh, I have a scar from my chest to my belly button because they just had to rip me open. And um, I, I burst apart my spleen. And uh, the thing about spleens, I, I didn't know this until about 10 years ago, uh, is that you can cut out any part of a spleen and it will keep on spleening. It will stay, if, if it can attach itself to any living thing, it just keeps on doing what it does and kind of grows. So. I went, 10 years ago, I wanted to give away my kidney, and, and I couldn't do it because they said, you've got a weird inside going on here. There's all these growths in there, and one of them was on a lymph node, and one of them was on my kidney, and, and with the lymph node, they thought I had cancer or something because it's so enlarged. Freaked me out for a while before they finally found out what it was. So I got all these little spleenies <laughs> inside of me, growing, all these little spleenies, little networks of things going on, all because I didn't listen to my dad. And the moral of the story is, uh, your preferences don't define reality. If, you, if, if, if you, you pit your preferences against reality, reality wins. 
I don't care how much you prefer, you don't need a parachute, jump out of a plane, uh, gravity's going to win. Uh, and so this idea that reality should conform to our expectations and our beliefs is just ludicrous. But see, the, the consumer mindset is just so ingrained in us that we, we, we kind of forget that. And some even define truth on the basis of the truth and pre- their, their, their preferences and expectations. So since that's so deeply ingrained, it's natural that people look at church this way. We're consumers. We are the consumers. And, and so the church is the provider. And we'll decide uh, what church we're going to go to based on our preferences and, and, and our expectations. And so people, you know, this is how they think. Here's church A and here's church B. And church A, well, you know, the people are kind of nice and I like the music a whole lot. And, and it's only seven minutes from our house. So that's a real benefit. A lot of benefits there. On the other hand, church B, my kids have more fun at church B. And, and you know, church A, the preacher's kind of wacko and, and, and offensive sometimes. Church B, the guy's really funny. He tells a lot of good stories. So uh, th- that's a plus over there. My kids have more fun. Uh, it's 17 minutes from our house and the music's not quite as good. Uh, but but, you know, they do have these cool cup holders in the, in, the, in, the, in the service where you can put your latte while you listen to the sermon, and that's a real plus. So you just kind of weighing it. You know, how, how should it go? And then there's a lot, some churches that, that cater to that. You've know, got to give the customer what they want. And, and so, um, you know, they, they will... Uh, and, and everyone knows that there's a lot of options out there. Religious consumers have a lot of options, and, and, and the, the competition is getting tougher and tougher. So everyone's got to ratchet up their game. So you pour $48 million into having the coolest building, you know, you can have with all the amenities, and you got a $1 million fountain out front, and, and it's got nice rotating lights that turn the color into different waters, because all that's just beautiful, and it communicates success. And religious consumers in America really like to be associated with something successful. And you pour in your $30,000 each weekend to have a kicking service, so they keep coming back for more. Uh, meantime, there's bunch of homeless people 10 miles down the road, but they're not really on your radar screen because they really don't help you attract customers and, and, and how to keep customers. Now, there's nothing wrong with trying to attract customers and or, or attract people and keep people, but the trouble is it, it can stop there and it becomes an end in and of itself. And then when you're doing sermons in this kind of environment, you know, you have to attract the religious consumers and keep the religious consumers. So you want your sermons to, you know, have funny stories and nice stuff and, and you don't want to have anything that could possibly be offensive. Consumers do not like to be offended. They will take their business down the road to the competition. So take out anything that could possibly be offensive. Uh, what you end up with, folks, is sort of like a McDonald's version of church. Uh, Mick Christianity with a Mick church. And, and you have a Mick gospel, which nothing's offensive, and everything's nice, and everything's gentle. And a Mick Jesus, who's just there to make your life a little sweeter, offering you some Mick salvation so that you can be sure you're going to go to heaven when you die. And they'll throw, even, they'll throw in even a, oh, they might have a few ministries, Mick ministries, to help you feel good about yourself. And they'll throw in a little McNugget, which is the latte holder, so you can put it there while you're listening to the... the the, the, the preacher, yeah, it costs an extra $150,000, but the costs outweigh the benefits unless you're one of the homeless people 10 miles down the road. So what's wrong with this picture? Now, see, that, 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 that consumer church, McChurch, the goal of attracting people and, and keeping people is, is good. Uh, we all want to reach as many people as we can. And, um, and they're willing to meet people where they're at. And, and, and as missionaries in, in this land, that's what we have to do. We want to meet people right where they're at to take them to where we believe God wants them to be. And the ingenuity and the creativity that, that some churches use to do that is, is, is admirable. We can learn some things from that. But the problem starts when you start to water down the content of what you stand for, what you believe, and what you present. 
uh, in order to meet people where they're at. That becomes a problem. And, and really the issue here is this. It, it, it can become so consumed with meeting people's needs that you don't give people what they want. You, give, uh, you, you, don't, you don't give them what they need. You give them what they want and you forget to give them what they need because what people need is often not what they want. And, and uh, see, what, what people really need is to encounter the, the life of God, the, the life of Christ that can free them from their addiction to their consumer mindset, free them from the addiction of thinking it's all about them, free them from our addiction to weighing everything in terms of cost to us versus benefit from us. What people need is, is not a, a mick gospel that you know, doesn't confront anything and just conforms to the cultural expectations and the cultural common sense and, and the cultural preferences and conforms to everything people already want. What, what, what they need is not a mick gospel that just sort of supplements their life and leaves them fundamentally unchanged. What people want, need desperately need and what they really want most people don't know it but what we are longing for is this life of God that can transform us from the inside out it confronts everything it challenges our most fundamental assumptions about God and ourselves and the world what we desperately need is the real gospel with a real Jesus who's willing to confront the stuff in the culture that is not good for us that's not healthy that's not consistent with the will of God and call into question fundamental things we've believed and common sense assumptions that we've held all of our life that's what we need not another gospel that conforms everything. And that, that means, folks, that they're, they're, the gospel has to risk being offensive sometimes. There's a dimension of the gospel that risks offending people, and we must never lose that. Okay, Paul talks about this in, in, in Galatians. Uh, the, the Galatian church had come under the influence of uh, these Jewish Christians who believed that, even though they believed in Jesus, they believed that uh, one had to abide by the law in order to be rightly related to God. That, that, was, still, that was still part of the, the new covenant. Uh, and, and so they required Gentiles, Gentile males, to be circumcised because circumcision was the sign of the covenant, sign that you're pledged to keep the whole law. So they're going to require Gentiles to be circumcised, which I imagine cut down evangelism to Gentile males quite a bit, but that's another topic. So uh, Paul is livid about this. He preaches to them about the freedom of Christ, and then he says this. Listen to this. He says, I am confident in the Lord that you will make no other view, that you'll take no other view than the freedom I've just proclaimed. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. He's ticked. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision as a requirement uh, to keep in the law, why am I being persecuted? So apparently he's being persecuted by Jews and Jewish Christians. In that case, the offense of the cross, listen to this, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I love this line out of the word of God. I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. <laughs> okay, so Paul had a sense of humor, and it could get kind of biting when he was ticked off. And so what he's saying is, if these guys are so passionate about cutting off the foreskin, why stop there? I wish they'd cut off the whole thing. That's what he's saying. I, I, thus ends the reading of the word of God today. Go castrate yourself. <laughs> okay, it wasn't Paul's uh, most Christ-like moment, but I love the fact that <laughs> I love the fact that the, that the word retains the, the human elements of people. Right? You can relate to Paul. He's, he uh, yeah, he he wasn't perfect. So, anyways, uh, what I want us to focus on is this phrase: the offense of the cross. It must not be abolished. So, you need to understand that the message of the cross that Paul was preaching. The gospel that Paul's preaching was really offensive to Jews. Uh, 
for one thing, they believe the Messiah was supposed to come and he's going to beat up all their enemies, slay all their enemies, and free Israel to be a sovereign nation once again. Once again. They thought they were going to benefit from the Messiah coming. Um, and so here Paul comes preaching that the Messiah, instead of doing that, he gets himself crucified by the enemies he's supposed to be squashing. And then he calls on us to live the same kind of life. That's not what Jewish people wanted to hear. That wasn't the Messiah they were expecting. It didn't conform to their preferences. They didn't benefit from this. Not only that, but the message of the cross is a message that, that now we are transformed by the love of God being poured into us, and we're not bound by these external regulations. The law has served its purpose that led us to Christ, and so now it's abolished. And that was deeply offensive to, to Jews. Uh, this is like the, the most fundamental... This was to them what our consumer mindset is to us. Uh, it, it, this is the center of their culture, this, the foundation of their religion. This is what made them special. They are the law keepers. God gave them the law. This is the, their uniqueness. And now Paul is saying that it has no significance whatsoever. That was deeply offensive. And so when some, Jewish, when some Jews became Christians, um, they still held on to that as a cultural thing. This is what makes us special. And they wanted to impose that on Gentiles. Um, now, Paul, the, the way he responds here, he, he, he's saying this. I could conform to that, make the gospel easier, and I could conform to this cultural expectation. Since he is, himself is a Jew, it would be easy for him to do that. But he says, if I did that, I'd, I'd benefit because I wouldn't be persecuted anymore. But on the other hand, the cross wouldn't be offensive. The cross would lose its offense, which he's assuming should never, ever happen. So the way he proves that Gentiles should not be subject to circumcision, not at least for religious reasons, uh, is that he's saying if they were circumcised for religious reasons to keep the law, then the cross would not be offensive. And, and that to him is proof because the cross, the cross is supposed to be offensive. There's a, a dimension of the message of the cross, which is simply his word for the gospel, that is, that is edgy. It confronts things and it can offend. Another place where he does this is, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, he, he says that the cross is foolishness and weakness to all who are in the world, but it, to us it's the wisdom and the power of God. So if we're preaching the right gospel, it's going to look foolish and weak to everybody who's thinking in terms of the world's strength and the world's wisdom. It has to look foolish and weak. If you're preaching a gospel that doesn't look foolish and weak to people who are thinking according to the normal common sense patterns of this world, then you're not preaching the right gospel. I often tell people that if your view of God isn't, doesn't look foolish and weak to, to other people, you're not holding on to the right view of God. So he's saying that on the cross, God displayed his power and wisdom by allowing himself to be crucified by the enemies that everybody else thought he was supposed to annihilate. What kind of God does that? When God flexes his omnipotent bicep, it looks like him getting crucified by the, out of love for the people who are crucifying him. It's radical. That's, that's, that's God's nature. That's who God is. That's what God does. And see, if you understand that, it's got to offend. It's got to offend all who, who, who still assume that God's power is just like our power, but in an infinite degree. That God's power is the kind of power people have always clamored for. That God's power is the power to impose his will when he wants. That God is simply a, like a cosmic Zeus, a giant Zeus, who can, through threats, impose his will on people. Or an Arnold Schwarzenegger up there with his giant biceps, who, uh, who i got to get a new analogy, because he's getting kind of old, and I don't think he's that developed anymore. But, but you get what I'm talking about. But it's Arnold Schwarzenegger power to just sort of coercively get your way. Or God is like this cosmic Caesar, who can just decree it, and then it gets done. 
Which is why people who believe this think that everything that happens is the result of God's decreeing it. Even the miserable suffering stuff, all part of God's decree. Well, see, if that's your paradigm of what power is, and it is for most people, God's just a control freak. The cross is deeply offensive because it says that God rules and God wins not by crushing people, but by laying it down his life and letting others crush him out of, out of love to, in hopes of, of, of entering into a relationship with him. It's a radically different kind of a message. And it's going to offend all who hold different assumptions about things. But the most offensive part of the cross is it's, it's hard enough to get people to believe that God actually is like that. But we're also called to live it. Not only believe it, but we're called to live that. And this, folks, is going to confront our consumer mindset in a radical way. Uh, and, and it brings me to the subject of the church, because the church is to be the body of all those who have, who have said, yes, I will live the way of the cross. The cross isn't something that just something that Jesus did for us. It's something that we are called to replicate. So Paul says this, Ephesians 5, uh, 5 1 and 2. Live in love. Or first it says, imitate God. There it is. That's your marching orders. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. This is what it looks like to be an imitator of God. You're imitating Jesus. Especially, you're imitating Jesus who died for us on the cross. That's our marching orders. Now, the Bible tells us that God became a human and died on the cross for us while we were yet sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet enemies, Paul says, Christ died for us. And we're called to imitate that. And this is going to offend some people. But what that means is that we're called to love enemies. Jesus says that explicitly. Love your enemies, bless those who persecute you, pray for those who despitefully use you, do good to them, never retaliate, turn the other cheek, uh, and so on. Because that's the way God treated us. We're to love them. Um, now that's got to offend everybody who... Just assumes, trusting that common sense fallen assumption that, that, that you have a right to protect yourself, your loved ones, and your nation, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. It's going to offend all who still believe in righteous retaliation and righteous preemptive strikes. It, it's got to offend all who trust in the, 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 the power of guns to protect and the power of bombs to annihilate enemies. It's got to offend people who still want to hold to the right to pack and carry and conceal because you never know when you might need it to defend yourself. In fact, it's got to offend... Anyone who still assumes that it's better to kill than to be killed. Because Jesus says to do the exact opposite. What? That confronts the most fundamental common sense assumption that people have ever had, right? It, it, it goes after our, our, our instinct of self-preservation, and yet this is what Christ calls us to do. It, it's offensive. It confronts that. Uh, it only makes sense to do this, folks, to, to follow the way of the cross, to love your enemies. It only makes sense. If, if you're a person who, who, whose life goal is to imitate God, to imitate what God did for you. It only makes sense if you're a person who has gotten overwhelmed by the love of God as he poured his life out for you, that it fills your heart and the life of God pours into you and the love, that other-oriented love of God pours into you. Uh, it only makes sense if, if, if you've gotten your life full from Christ so that you don't need to cling to this life anymore. It only makes sense if, if you're a person who understands that this present life right here is a little, a little, little dot on an infinite line and that your life's going to go on forever. It only makes sense to love your enemies to the point of death. If you live in a narrative where death is not the end, it's the beginning, and you know that heaven is, 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 is glorious and wonderful and you're in the love of God and the peace of God and the joy of God and you know you'll be filled for all eternity so you no longer fear death, now it makes sense to do this. 
But if you're looking at things through a cost and assessment benefit thing, well, it's going to look like it's all cost and no benefit. So it just doesn't make any sense at all. It's an offense. It confronts that. See, this is not, if you're in the consumer grid weighing cost and benefits, this is not what you want. This is not what you want to hear. Because it looks like all lost, no benefit. But it is what you need. It is what you need. Because we're created for that life. The life of God. We hunger for that life. We thirst for that life. And all of our chasing after other stuff is just misdirected, misdirected energy. Uh, because what it's really trying to do is to lead us back to God. And to get our life for, for, from God. To the point where you're free. You're, you're freed from that consumer, that consumer mindset. And now you don't need to be clinging, you don't need to be chasing, don't need to be agitated, don't need to be striving to try to get full because you're already full, which is how you, why you can let go of everything else. This is the call of God, the imitators of God. And it applies not just to our, not, not just to our enemies, it's got to affect all of our life. Uh, and the church, is the, the church is the body of people who are committed to, to doing this. So Paul tells us this in Philippians 2. This is what love looks like. He says that, Jesus, though he was equal with God, though he was God, he didn't cling to his equality with God, didn't cling to his privileges, didn't cling to his advantages. A lot of advantages being God, you know. Uh, but he didn't cling to that. He rather set them aside. He emptied himself of those, Paul says, in order to become a human being, a servant, and then to die on a cross. So God didn't cling to his blessedness, his status, his privileges, his advantage. He rather emptied himself of those and entered into solidarity with us because we needed him to. And he suffered with us and suffered for us because, he needed, because we needed him to. He didn't need to do that. He chose to do that. He's other-oriented. He's an other-oriented God who pours himself out towards others in love and enters into solidarity with, with them, makes our problems his own problems. And we are called to imitate that. Whatever advantages, whatever privileges, whatever power we have, we're not just to cash in on it and live in our own little happy oasis of a bubble of blessedness. Uh, no, we're to be, have eyes that look outside of ourselves and to be willing to pour ourselves into others. As he pours his life into us, we're to be poured out into others. So for example, some of you may have noticed that I'm a white guy. And a white guy in America has got some advantages, got some privileges. Among other things, I don't need to worry about getting shot by authorities when I'm not doing anything. Now, I can just take advantage of that and go along with my happy self and just, like, lucky me, lucky me. But uh, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm not, I, I, I can't live in a lucky me realm of privilege. If I'm a follower of Jesus, I have to do what God did for me, and that is he didn't cling to his advantages, his privileges. He set them aside to enter into solidarity with us. So also I, as a white person, am called to not live in my privilege, but to set it aside and enter into solidarity with those who really are grieving over this and, and suffering over this. Because if the church is called to model what God does for us, the shooting of unarmed black people isn't a black problem. It's an us problem. Eh? It's an us problem. Amen. And so you enter into solidarity with that. And that's how you get more understanding about things, too. You get out of your own cultural myopia and begin to understand other perspectives. But it's that way for everything, folks. Look, at, I live in a nice house. I never worry about the weather, uh, you know, killing me or something. But I can't just live in that little bubble of advantage and privilege. I have to have an eye for and a heart for people who don't have homes. And I have to enter in solidarity with them. And, and, and as I can feel their pain, it motivates me to, to do what I can about that. And I've got plenty of food. I haven't gone hungry for a long time. I probably should go hungry voluntarily more often, but I've got plenty of food. But I can't let that little oasis of privilege uh, 
blind me to the fact that there are people who don't have food. And if I'm a follower of Jesus, and if you're a follower of Jesus, their hunger is our hunger. We enter into solidarity with that. And I've got a lot of great friends. I feel fulfilled in that department. But I can't let that, that, that privilege, that, that bubble of blessedness, uh, prevent me from noticing people who don't have friends and being willing to reach out a hand and enter into solidarity with them. Um, and I, I don't get discriminated against, but I can't use that privilege, that benefit, uh, to prevent me from entering into uh, solidarity with those who are discriminated, discriminated against and making their pain my pain. Uh, the church is to be a body of people who are, we really have the opposite mindset of the consumer mindset. Whereas everyone's walking around saying, what's the cost and benefit to me? To me, we're to have the mindset of, we're willing to pay the cost for the benefit of others. Okay, it's the opposite of this. We're to be a, a, a body of people, amen, who receive the life of God and therefore are willing to be poured out towards others. And just uh, uh, living life towards the, a goal to benefiting others. This is why we have, why, you know, we, we, well, why we're going to be breaking leaves next week. You know, we, we don't know these folks, uh, but, but uh, you know what? They need leaves to be raked, and the church should be the people to say, okay, let's, let's pour out a Saturday and, and help rake those leaves. It's why we partner with and service and, and house here in our building, uh, a food shelf ministry to feed people who don't have enough food, and job training for adults and for kids at youth, and meals on wheels for senior citizens, and a daycare, affordable daycare for, for disadvantaged families, and, and support groups for all different kinds of issues that people may be going through, and tons of other ministries. And it's not because we want to feel good about ourselves so we can pat ourselves on the back. It's because this is what it looks like to imitate God. This is what it looks like to be poured out for others. This is what the church is called to be. This is, this is how we do. And so, folks, the church should be the, a group of people that are always asking, where's the wound that we can help heal? Where's the need that we can help meet? Where's the void that we can help fill? And getting our life from God and clinging to nothing else, because we're getting our life from God, we should be the first to let go of those things for the sake of others. So we all need the life of God, the love of God, that other-oriented love of God. Uh, we're created for that. We hunger for that. We thirst for that. It's the most desperate need in our life. It's what makes the world go round. People don't know it, but they're driven by this hunger. And they just think that if they just get enough trinkets and get enough recognition and get enough fame and get enough, this will be full. But it never works. It never works. See, and that's why the cross has got to be offensive. We have to, to get the life of Christ, we've got to die to every other false form of life. God can't fill you if you're always trying to get yourself full by who's noticing you and what you're achieving and what you own and what you possess and all your other advantages. And so to get that life, we have to die to that consumer self. Die to that self-centered consumer, what's in it for me, cost-benefit analysis self. You die to that, and then you find out what life is really all about. And so the cross, it offends every false form of life. Whatever we're clinging to, if we keep clinging to it, it's going to offend us. If you're getting life because you think you're more righteous, the message of the cross is going to offend you. Because that's a false way of getting life. If you're getting life because you think that you're impressing God, the cross is going to offend you. If you're getting life because you think you hold all the right beliefs as opposed to the others, and you do all the right behaviors as opposed to others, the cross is going to offend you. If you get life because you're trying to fill it with riches or fill it with pleasure or fill it with, with, with fame, the cross is going to offend you. If you're clinging to your nationalism or your ethnic identity or anything else, the cross has to confront that. And God's doing it out of love. They're doing it out of love because you've got to let that go if you're going to really live. You see? And so the, that, that edgy dimension of the cross gospel has got to always stay there. It never can be compromised. The worst thing you can do for people is to leave them where they're at. He wants to confront in order to transform and it faces us, it poses a question to us, will we die to all that false way of living and live 
find the life of God that goes on forever, or are we going to keep on clinging? Going to keep on clinging to stuff. And it can feel like death to let that stuff go because you've been doing it all your life. But then, then again, here's the thing. That old consumer, self-centered self, it is a miserable self. It's a perpetual striving self. It's a perpetually hungry self. It's a perpetually tired self. It's an unfulfilled self. It's an empty self. It's a futile self. To kill that sucker, is, the, the name of that is freedom. You kill that and you get set free. Amen? Amen. Because it means you no longer need to chase and cling and pursue and strive and be angry when something doesn't go your way. No, you let go of all that and now you are free. And you don't even have to cling to your life, which is why you can now live in the love that Christ loved you with and, and gave his life for you while you were yet an, an, an enemy. You let it go. Just let it go. Die to all that. So the church is the body of people who are, have, are, are practicing how to let it go. Which means, folks, the church isn't here to meet your wants. Sorry, don't mean to offend you. It's not here to just be everything you want. Uh, it is here to help you and help all of us find what we really need. And what we really need is to get free from the mindset of we get what we want. Uh, we need to get free of the chasing after false idols. Where the body people are learning how to die to that consumer self, to, to, to live in the full life and love and joy and peace of God so we can all overflow to others. So coming to church shouldn't be a matter of what, you know, meet my needs. It should be a matter of how can I meet the needs of others. Uh, To go back to the video that we watched, there's two ways we get poured out. We get poured out inside and outside. Inside, we're to be poured out to one another. There's 57 one another's in the New Testament. Love one another, serve one another, bless one another, speak truth to one another, on and on and on. We all need context where we have relationships where we do that. We don't do it by coming in a big room with a bunch of people we don't know, but we need relationships that are more intimate to that. And, and, and where we're learning how to pour out for others, where we go beyond a contractual commitment and we have a covenant commitment. And, and see, God uses that to grow us further as we learn how to deny our own wants for the sake of others. And so I encourage us to be pursuing those relationships if you don't have those already. You might you know, sign up for the table talks that we're going to be having. That's a great way to meet people. And out of that may come relationships where you get to begin to do the one another's uh, towards each other. We're to be poured out to one another, and then we are to be poured out to the world, individually and collectively. Uh, and if, so it's good to ask the question and come back to it frequently. Uh, are you, in fact, getting all of your core life, worth, significance, identity, security from what God thinks about you as revealed on the cross? Is that what makes you feel good about yourself? Is that your fullness of life? Is he, in fact, enough, as, we sang, or as we're going to sing here in, in, in a moment? Is he enough? Um, and if you find that if you're chasing after stuff, that's an indication, a symptom, that you're not getting all your life from Christ. And so I encourage you, when, if you see that, just make a commitment to die to that, not caring about that, and to get all your life from Christ. And then ask the question, are you, in fact, being poured out towards others in the church and outside the church? Where is that happening in your life? How is your life different because you're a kingdom person? Uh, if we're not clinging to the stuff and we're imitating God, it ought to be that we have a lot less than we otherwise would have if we weren't a kingdom person. Think about it, because we're letting it go. We're not cl- clinging to our advantages. We're pouring ourselves out. Uh, and then are, are, are you being poured out, not just in your own life, in your neighborhood and workplace, but poured out for the church as a whole? Are you sacrificing of time and resources so that we as a whole can do what we're called to do? Involved in the ministries, for example, that I just mentioned a little bit ago where we're pouring out into people's lives who are hungry and who are homeless and, and who have other needs. Uh, are we being poured out in that way? Uh, we're going to take communion now. And communion is all about contemplating the cross. And I want us to think, first of all, about what Jesus, think concretely as we take the bread and cup, about what Jesus did for us. He didn't have to do that. He just was other-oriented. 
He set aside his advantages to enter into solidarity with us. Think about the price of that, the pain of that, and know that that's what God is like, and that's how God loves you. And drink deeply of that. Internalize it. Because it's only all that fullness that we can live the life he calls us to live. And as you drink this, know that it's also our covenant with him. We're pledging to live this way. And so ask the Spirit to show you other areas of your life where he wants you to be poured out more significantly inside the church and outside the church. Because we are to be the body of those who imitate the God who pours himself out. Amen? Amen. So the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took uh, the bread that he had. It was just an ordinary piece of bread, as ordinary as this piece of bread. And he broke it before them. And he said, this bread is my body, which is to be broken for you. So as often as you take this bread and eat it, do it in remembrance of me. Remember the cost and remember the call. And then he took the cup, a cup that was as ordinary as this cup, not a holy grail of some sort. It was just an ordinary cup because God always uses the ordinary. And he said, this cup is the cup of the new and everlasting covenant because this cup represents my blood, which is going to be shed for you. And so when you take the cup and drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. Remember the cost, remember the call. Let him pour into you so you can be poured out to others. Uh, here at Willow Hills, we have open communion, which just simply means anyone who feels led to take communion can take communion. Jesus didn't do any theological background checks, and neither do we. So you're free to take communion. And uh, the, the, the tables are around the auditorium, and we have some here up front. Uh, the, the bread is gluten-free, so you don't have to worry about that. Holy Spirit, come now, land on us as we worship you once again. Sear the truth and the beauty and the reality and the call of the cross into our lives. In Jesus' name.